Let's uh, learn about the minor prophets again. Today it is Joel. Somebody heard the last thing I said last week. All right. Yeah, we're going to turn to the book of Joel. A little bit of review. The minor prophets were raised up by God in what years? Anybody remember? Don't look at your sheets. That's cheap. Yeah, basically 850 to 435. So we're talking over the course of four centuries, four and a half centuries. The minor prophets are from time to time um, delivering messages to God's people, warnings, um, calls to repentance. Um, encouragements about God's um, restoration. And, I mean, you look at the dates of the prophets, and, you know, they're 50, 60, sometimes 100 years between these minor prophets. You put the major prophets in there, and, and they're, you know, like generational gaps. And we have a tendency to think that it was like one, one prophesied and the next got up and prophesied and then there was another one and there was sort of the steady stream of prophets. Uh, no, um, they were, um, I mean, there's 60, 70 years sometimes between the prophets. So just think about that. Um, we looked at Obadiah last time. And we're turning to Joel. I think that Joel, although again, there's some disagreement, like there was with Obadiah about the dating, there's some disagreement about Joel. Um, the, the older dating is what I've gone with, and it is 830. But some people believe that it's during the post-exilic period. And uh, there are reasons for that in the text that might uh, make us lean toward uh, a later date, maybe in the 400s or even later. But um, I'm going with the older date. I think it fits in quite well here. So, um, a little bit, what's the, uh, what's the prophetic idiom? Remember we talked about the prophetic idiom what is that? I think it's helpful that we review that a little bit just so that we have it in our heads. Any stab at the prophetic idiom? Excellent. Let's, let's just move on then. <laughs> what is the prophetic idiom? Somebody's got to be able to take a stab at it. <clears throat> Maybe not. Well, the prophetic idiom is why the minor prophets are so hard to understand. Because when prophets speak, it's hard to tell whether they're speaking about events that will shortly occur or events that will occur in hundreds of years or events that will occur at the last judgment. And so the prophets speak in this way, in this idiom, 
where that's not always um, clear, right? Or it's not that they, you know, sometimes they'll use the present tense about a calamity that's coming and it doesn't happen for hundreds of years, right? It's a prophecy spoken in the present tense, but it doesn't, it isn't fulfilled till later. Um, sometimes the prophecies are fulfilled immediately, they're fulfilled intermediately, and they're fulfilled on the last day, right? So th- that makes understanding the minor prophets somewhat difficult because you can't place everything um, clearly, all right? The, um, wh- how did God use the prophets? What, what was the content of their message, generally speaking? It was calls to repentance for For what? For Jews and sometimes Gentiles, right? Um, some of the books are addressed to Gentiles. We'll, we'll see that with Jonah, for instance. Um, what else? It's not just about repentance. Faith, there is mention of faith in the minor prophets. Um, Putting your trust in the Lord, right? Um, Serving God. They call for conformance to God's covenant demands, right? That call for repentance is God has told you in his covenant stipulations how you are to live. Now come back to that. You've gone and worshipped idols. Come back to that. Live according to God's covenant stipulations. They preached very specifically against sins, but then there's one other thing they do that's not preaching. Sometimes. Anybody remember? They do that. They proclaim the day of the Lord, the coming judgment, right? But outside of using words, there are other ways that they speak. Symbolic actions, right? The symbolic actions that they um, are called to um, take before the eyes of Israel to teach them uh, in a different way than with um, words. So, all right, so that's just a little bit of review. Now, we're in the book of Joel. Like I said, Joel is, uh, does anybody know what the, the name Joel means? Joel? No, it is Jehovah is God, okay? Obadiah was slave of the Lord or servant of the Lord. Now we have Jehovah is God. This is 830, and where? Where is it? Uh, it is in the southern kingdom. So this is Joel is, is serving in the southern kingdom, which is called Judah, and the capital city of Judah is Jerusalem, the city of David, right? Now, some historical context. This book likely took place during the reign of Queen, of the wicked Queen Athalia, 
who was married to King Jehoshaphat, or, or it starts um, just in the early days of King Joash, who's a very young king. I think he was eight years old when he took over um, being king of Judah, okay? But what do you know about Athaliah? She murdered a lot of important people. Yeah, 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 yeah. She is the daughter of whom? Ahab and Jezebel, right? So she didn't have exactly the upbringing that you would want a young lady to have with a mother like Jezebel. And um, so she, she, was, she was wicked, right? Her son, her son Jehoram, reigned in Judah. And um, we have to go to 2 Kings 11 to fill out the picture of Athaliah. So 2 Kings 11. And I know it's easy to forget these uh, and get lost in all the chronicles of the kings and get lost and not remember the things that take place. But this is one of the more extraordinary things. Um, so let's go to um, 2 Kings 10.34. says this, Now the rest of the acts of Jehu and all that he did and all his might, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? And Jehu slept with his fathers, and they buried him in Samaria. And Jehoahaz, his son, became king in his place. Now the time, when Je- which, now the time which Jehu reigned over Israel and Samaria was 28 years. When Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, saw that her son was dead, she rose and destroyed all the royal offspring. But Jehoshaphat the daughter of King Joram, sister of Ahaziah, took Joash, the son of Ahaziah, and stole him from among the king's sons who were being put to death and placed him and his nurse in the bedroom. So they hid him from Athaliah, and he was not put to death. So he was hidden with her in the house of the Lord six years while Athaliah was reigning over the land. Now in the seventh year, Jehoiada sent and brought the captains of hundreds of the Karaites and of the guard and brought them to him in the house of the Lord. Then he made a covenant with them and put them under oath in the house of the Lord and showed them the king's son. So this guy comes in, he's like, guess what I've got? I've got the king. You know, I've got the son. I've got the heir. He's been hidden for six years. He commanded them, saying, This is the thing that you should do, one-third of you who come in on the Sabbath and keep watch over the king's house. One-third also shall be at the gate sewer, and one-third at the gate behind the guards shall keep watch over the house for defense. Two parts of you, even all of you, go out on the Sabbath, shall also keep watch over the house of the Lord for the king. Then you shall surround the king, each with his weapons in his hands, and whoever comes within the ranks shall be put to death." And be with the king when he goes out and when he comes in. So the captains of hundreds did according to all that Jehoiada the priest commanded. And each one of them took his men who were to come in on the Sabbath with those who were to go out on the Sabbath and came to Jehoiada the priest. The 
priests gave to the captain of hundreds the spears and shields that had been King David's, which were in the house of the Lord. The guards stood, each with his weapon in his hand, from the right side of the house to the left side of the house, by the altar and by the house, around the king. Then he brought the king's son out and put the crown on him and gave him the testimony. And they made him king and anointed him, and they clapped their hands and they said, Long live the king! When Athaliah heard the noise of the guard and of the people, she came to the people in the house of the Lord. She looked, and behold, the king was standing by the pillar according to the custom with the captains and the trumpeters beside the king. And all the people of the land rejoiced and blew trumpets. Then Athaliah tore her clothes and cried, Treason! Treason! And Jehoiada the priest commanded the captains of hundreds who were appointed over the army and said to them, Bring her out between the ranks, and whoever follows her, put to death with the sword. For the priest said, Let her not be put to death in the house of the Lord. So they seized her, and when she arrived at the horse's entrance of the king's house, she was put to death there. Then Jehoiada made a covenant between the Lord and the king and the people, that they would be the Lord's people also between the king and the people. And all the people of the land went to the house of Baal and tore it down. His altars and his images, they broke in pieces thoroughly and killed Mathan, the priest of Baal, before the altars and the priests appointed officers over the house of the Lord. He took the captains of hundreds and the Karaites and the guards and all the people of the land and they brought the king down from the house of the Lord and came by the way of the gate of the guards to the king's house, and he sat on the throne of the kings. So all the people of the land rejoiced, and the city was quiet, for they had put Athaliah to death with the sword at the king's house. Jehoash was seven years old, and he became king. No doubt surrounded by a bevy of counselors. So... That's what's happening in Israel when Joel is given the message that he's given. Athaliah is reigning. Athaliah is a, a bloody, ambitious queen, right? Who has, in the worst way, um, gotten power into her own hands. And so, Joel, turning back to Joel then we find that God uses an army to um, use, raises up an army to rebuke the people and Athaliah and this whole situation. And that army is what? It's an army of locusts. Now, have any of you ever seen YouTube videos of locusts, locust infestations? I mean, it, you, there will not be a single, single bit of green left when a locust swarm goes through an area. They destroy everything living. I mean, every green plant they will destroy. It's gone. And you're just left with, like, nothing. Your crops are gone. Your trees are gone. Everything is gone. And they just eat through the place, right? So it's, 
it's quite, a, um, it's quite an army, right? We might think that it's not, uh, not formidable like an F-16 or something, but um, they still do damage, and modern technology hasn't stopped locust plagues. They still happen, right? They, and they're, they're almost unexplainable, right, outside of the providence of God. Okay, so let's read about this and what, and what happens here. This is Joel chapter 1. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. We don't know who he is. We don't know his father. This is the only time he's mentioned. Hear this, O elders, and listen, all inhabitants of the land. Has anything like this happened in your days or in your father's days? Tell your sons about it and let your sons tell their sons and their sons the next generation. What the gnawing locust has left, the swarming locust has eaten. And what the swarming locust has left, the creeping locust has eaten. And what the creeping locust has left, the stripping locust has eaten. Awake, drunkards, and weep and wail, all you wine drinkers, on account of the sweet wine that is cut off from your mouth. For a nation, and I, I take that as a nation of locusts, Right? A nation has invaded my land, mighty and without number. Its teeth are the teeth of a lion, and it has the fangs of a lioness. It has made my vine a waste and my fig tree splinters. It has stripped them bare and cast them away. Their branches have become white. Wail like a virgin girded with sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. The grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn, the ministers of the Lord... The field is ruined, the land mourns, for the grain is ruined. The new wine dries up, fresh oil fails. Be ashamed, O farmers, wail, O vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field is destroyed. The vine dries up and the fig tree fails. The pomegranate, the palm also, and the apple tree, all the trees of the field dry up. Indeed, rejoicing dries up from the sons of and then here's the first call to repentance. Gird yourselves with sackcloth and lament, O priests. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Come, spend the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God. For the grain offering and the drink offering are withheld from the house of God. Consecrate a fast, proclaim a solemn assembly, gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. Alas for the day, for, and here's the first mention of it, the day of the Lord is near. And what is the day of the Lord? The day of the Lord is a special day that God sets aside, right? And unusual interventions of God happen. Unusual outpourings of God's uh, wrath happen on that day, the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is to be feared, right? The day of the Lord um, happens when the locusts come. The day of the Lord happened when Babylon takes Israel off the land. The day of the Lord happens when, when the Assyrians, you know, uh, exile the people. The day of the Lord comes when Christ returns, right? So there's always a, when you read of the day of the Lord, you're thinking, you're thinking immediate fulfillment, and you sh your mind should always just, just by instinct, should just go forward to the day of the Lord 
when Jesus, that final judgment day, when Jesus returns and judges all people according to their works and all nations. All right, so last for the, for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, and it will come as destruction from the Almighty. Has not food been cut off before our eyes, gladness and joy from the house of our God? The seeds shrivel under their clods, the storehouses are desolate, the barns are torn down, for the grain is dried up. How the beasts groan, the herds of cattle wander aimlessly because there is no pasture for them. Even the flocks of sheep suffer. To you, O Lord, I cry, for fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness, and the flame has burned up all the trees of the field. Even the beasts of the field pant for you, for the water brooks are dried up, and fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. So that last part is all, and, and all throughout this, we're seeing the consequences of this locust armor, army coming up against Judah. They've been devastated, right? And, and I... I pick, you know, we don't know the specific historical setting, but if Athaliah is queen, this happened during her reign as a judgment against her and against the nation that would follow her, right? God didn't raise up a, an army of, of uh, you know, Edomites like we talked about last time. He raised up an army of locusts to devastate them economically, to even the drunkards were wailing because they didn't have any more wine, right? Everything was devastated. Food gone, crops gone, um, trading gone from Judah. And so there in the midst of that is that call to repentance. Gird yourselves with sackcloth and lament, O priests. Why do you think he calls the priests to lament? Why the priests? What do you mean? Oh, you mean specifically Jehoiada um, was was hiding away the king? Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, I agree. That is how it is is working out. Yep. Yep. Yeah. But but think about how the the role of priests. If the, if the priests are representatives to God, right, whereas prophets are God's representatives to the people, the, the priests are the people's representatives to God. If the representatives to God don't get their act in order, what are the people going to do, right? The priests are to be examples, Right? And so the call to repentance goes to the priests. The call, and that's why, that's why in, in our context, we, 
you know, judgment begins with the house of the Lord. That's why we call the church to repentance, because if the church is, is wayward, there's nothing to follow, right? There's no example. There's no example for your, your pagan neighbor to follow. If your life isn't in order, we get our lives in order. We repent ourselves. The church repents, and, um, and those follow. And the leaders of the church must be men who are quick to repent, who have tender consciences, um, who, who are an example of a, a tender conscience and are, are expressing that. And so, yeah, I think that's why the priests here are called. But any, what else stands out to you in this chapter? Anything? It's just a very bleak picture, isn't it? It's devastation. It's devastation from bugs, which I think is great. One individual locust, all of us could pick up and crush in our hand. No big deal, right? But 300 million locusts, and, and you're scared, right? Think of the sound. It would be just a roaring sound. It would sound like a machine that's just just grinding up the land. It would be incredible. Look it up on YouTube. I'm sure you can find some. What's that? Yeah, yeah. Did I see a hand over here? Or somebody stretching? You're just stretching, all right. All right, so that's that, that first call to repentance is basically verses 13 and 14, right, where, where the command is, gird yourself with sackcloth, consecrate a fast, proclaim a solemn assembly. What is that? A solemn assembly is just a special day to, to um, seek the Lord through prayer and fasting. It's a day set aside for that purpose, a solemn purpose of asking God to have mercy. And, and then notice that... that when, when it speaks of the day of the Lord being near or the day of the Lord occurring, the devastation is being caused by whom? God. God is bringing about his judgment. God is bringing about the devastation. He's using the means of the locusts. The locusts are doing God's will. In this, God is disciplining and punishing his people, and he ought to be feared because there is no reason to believe that God has changed a single bit from when he judged them and today. Because God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, right? So, verse chapter 2. Let's read through that. It's a little bit longer. I think we can actually read everything if we keep the pace up here. I got 20 minutes or so. Chapter 2, blow a trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble for the day of the Lord is coming. Surely it is near. A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness as the dawn is spread over the mountains. So there is a great and mighty people. There has never been anything like it, nor will there be again after it to the years of many generations. A fire consumes before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but a desolate wilderness behind them, and nothing at all escapes them. 
Their appearance is like the appearance of horses and like war horses, so they run. With the noise of chariots, they leap on the tops of mountains like the crackling of a flame of fire consuming the stubble, like a mighty people arrayed for battle. Before them the people are in anguish, all faces turn pale. They run like mighty men, they climb, all, they climb the wall like soldiers, and they each march in line, nor do they deviate from their paths. They do not crowd each other, they march everyone in his path. When they burst through the defense, defenses, they do not break ranks. They rush on the city, they run on the wall, they climb into the houses, they enter through the windows like a thief. Before them the earthquakes, the heavens tremble, the sun and the moon grows dark, and the stars lose their brightness. The Lord utters his voice before his army. The locusts. Surely his camp is very great. For strong is he who carries out his word. The day of the Lord is indeed great and very awesome, and who can endure it? That is the question, isn't it? The day, when, the, when the judgment of God comes, when the day of the Lord is upon us, when the day of the Lord is upon us, whether it's a locust plague, whether it's the, the attack against us of foreign enemies, whether it's, it's the, the day of the Lord, the day of the return of Christ, um, it is... It is awesome and great. And, and who can endure it? You, you can't oppose Almighty God. There's no power that we could invent. There's no AI that we could invent. There's no, um, there's no quantum mechanical device. There's nothing we could ever create that would, would compare with the power of Almighty God who can just say, okay, locusts, it's time. Go destroy the land. Right? Okay, it's time for an earthquake. And God, that is, that is our God. We don't, we don't serve a God um, that's cleaned up by the New Testament, right? Like there's an Old Testament God that does these sorts of things and a New Testament God that's all about, you know, dainty sandwiches and punch and, and like having a tea time together. That's a wicked, wicked caricature of God. God is angry against sin every day. He's angry against your sin. And how will you endure it? How are you going to endure the returning of the, of the angry God who has a sword from his mouth? How in the world are you going to do it? Because you can't. You can't. You can't put up a fight. You can't. You can't resist the power of God. He would delightfully take you out. No matter how pretty you are, no matter how educated you are, no matter what, he would delightfully take you out unless you are hidden in Christ. Christ.
If Christ is your hiding place, right? Your hiding place. Isn't it interesting how it says that in the book of Revelation? Right? Your hiding place. You want to be hidden in Christ so that when God's wrath comes, it doesn't touch you. That's how you endure. Put your faith in Jesus Christ. That's how you endure. That's the only way, that's the only, that's the only power that will deflect the wrath of God. And that's Christ in you. That's Christ in you, which is yours merely, merely by faith. So who can endure it? Just think of those, think of those words, who can endure it? Let's keep going. This is called a repentance number two, verses 12 through 17. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart. Interesting that this is now coming as God speaking. Return to me. Right? Yet even now, return to me with all your hearts. And hearts in the Hebrew, heart to the Hebrews was the whole man. It was the mind, the affections, the will. Okay? When they say heart. It's not just the emotions. It's the mind, affections, will. Return to me with all your heart and with fasting, weeping, and mourning, and rend your heart and not your garments. Now there's an image, right? Rend your heart and not your garments. Rending garments is outward, but rending the heart is inward, right? There's, we, we don't want to just have a show of repentance. We actually want to repent in the heart. And then this, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Now return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and relenting of evil. Who knows whether he will not return. Now, let me say that again. Who knows whether he will not return and relent and leave a blessing behind him, even a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow a trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, proclaim a solemn assembly, gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children and the nursing infants. Who was to go to this solemn assembly? Everybody. Children, young, old, priests, elders, all were to be there. All of Israel was to be gathered Let the bridegroom come out of his room and the bride out of her bridal chamber. Even those who are getting married on that day have to put the marriage on hold and go to the solemn assembly. Let the priests, the Lord's ministers, weep between the porch and the altar and let them say, spare your people, O Lord, and do not make your inheritance a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they among the people say, where is their God? That prayer there, well, I mean, that section, that whole section, it goes, so, so the question is, who can endure it? And then it turns to God speaking, and then God reminds the people that he is gracious and compassionate, that he's slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness, right? So he reminds them of his, his gracious character, which should thrill you you sinners, right? And I'm saying that to myself. We sinners who feel the weight of God's judgment, then God says, I'm slow to anger. I'm abounding in loving kindness, right? I relent from evil, it says. 
And then verse 14, I think, is really important. Their attitude is, is not, well, we're God's people. He'll forgive us. What do they say? Verse 14. What does it say in verse 14, the first line? Who knows? Who knows? Maybe, maybe he'll relent. <laughs> Which means that it is God's prerogative whether or not he forgives. It is his prerogative. There is nothing that you can do to make God obligated to forgive you. There's nothing. Nothing you can do. It's his prerogative. Who knows? But, but he does relent. And we know he relents because he sent his son. He's abounding in loving kindness because he sent his son, that last prophet. So um, let's keep going, see how far we're just, we can't get too deeply into this. This is just an overview to whet your appetite. Deliverance promised. Um, this is uh, verse 18. Then the Lord will be then the Lord will be zealous for his land and will have pity on his people. The Lord will answer and say to his people, "Behold, I am going to send you grain, new wine and oil, and you will be satisfied and full with them, and I will never again make you approach among the nations. But I will remove the northern army from you, and I will drive it into a parched and desolate land and its vanguard into the eastern sea, and its rearguard into the western sea, and its stench will arise, and its foul smell will come up, for it has done great things. Do not fear, O land, rejoice and be glad, for the Lord has done great things. Do not fear, beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness have turned green, for the tree has borne its fruit, the fig tree and the vine have yielded in full. So rejoice, O sons of Zion, and be glad in the Lord your God." For he has given you the early rain for your vindication. And he has poured down for you the rain, the early and the latter rains as before. The threshing floors will be full of grain and the vats will overflow with new wine and oil. Then I will make up to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten. The creeping locust, the stripping locust, and the gnawing locust, my great army which I sent among you. You will have plenty to eat and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you that my people will never be put to shame. Thus you will know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God and there is no other and my people will never be put to shame. You see how all the imagery is now shifted? All of it is about restoration. All of it is about, okay, you've repented and now you're no, you, you see you see me pouring out upon you blessing after blessing after blessing, right? And God's love for his people is jealous. He has a jealous love for his people, and he does not, he, he, he does not want to see his people put to shame. When they are shamed by others, God's anger and jealousy is aroused, Right? He does not want to see that, he, um, and he sees it all. But the results of repentance here are all of these physical blessings that once were removed, now they have returned. And then, verse 28, we have, so all those physical blessings, now 
God is so stupendously gracious that he gives spiritual blessings. It will come about after this that I will pour out my spirit on all mankind and your sons and your daughters will prophesy, your old men will dream dreams, your young men will see visions, even on the male and female servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. I will display wonders in the sky and on earth, blood, fire, and columns of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it will come about that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there will be those who escape, as the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. Now, some of that should be familiar to you, right? Right? Where do we read that? section of scripture, Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, the official outpouring of the Spirit upon the church of God. This, this is fulfilled in Acts 2, 900 years later, and 900 years we can't even conceive of, right? It just does not compute. Um, 900, think, think of the water under the bridge since 1124. Um, 900 years later, this is fulfilled. And when it, you know, don't get caught up in, in the sons and daughters will prophesy and, and all those things. Um, this is about the priesthood of all believers. That passage is really about the priesthood of all believers. The spirit is poured out on all believers, right? And they will have the Spirit in them to minister, right? But it doesn't have anything to do with whether pastors should be male and female, okay? There are other passages for that. This is about the priesthood of all believers. And then the day of the Lord, that final judgment, I believe that 30 through 32 is the final judgment. And now, all we have time for is to read chapter 3. For behold, in those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. Then I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my inheritance Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations and they have di divided up my land. They have also cast lots for my people, traded a boy for a harlot, and sold a, wine, uh, sold a girl for wine that they may drink. Moreover, what are you to me, O Tyre, Sidon, and all the regions of Philistia? Are you re rendering me a recompense? But if you do recompense me swiftly and speedily, I will return your recompense on your head. Since you have taken my silver and my gold, brought my precious treasures to your temples, and sold the sons of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks in order to remove them far from their territory. Behold, I am going to arouse them from the place where they, that you have sold them and return your recompense on your head. Also, I will sell your sons and your daughters into the hand of the sons of Judah, and they will sell them to the Sabaeans, to a distant nation, for the Lord has spoken." Proclaim this among the nations, prepare war, rouse the mighty men, let all the soldiers draw near, let them come up, beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears, let the weak say I am a mighty man. Hasten and come all you surrounding nations and gather yourselves there, bring down O Lord your mighty ones, let the nations be aroused and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat for there I will sit in judgment 
all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come tread, for the wine press is full. The vat overflows, for their wickedness is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and moon grow dark and the stars lose their brightness. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. And the heavens and the earth tremble. But the Lord is a refuge for his people and a stronghold to the sons of Israel. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God, dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain. So Jerusalem will be holy and strangers will pass through it no more. And in that day, the mountains will drip with sweet wine and the hills will flow with milk and all the brooks of Judah will flow with water and a spring will go out from the house of the Lord to the, valley of the, uh, to the water of the valley of Shittim. Egypt will become a waste and Edom will become a desolate wilderness because of the violence done to the sons of Judah in whose land they have shed innocent blood. But Judah will be inhabited forever in Jerusalem for all generations. And I, have, I will avenge their blood, which I have not avenged, for the Lord dwells in Zion. So we've gone from, you wicked people, the locusts are going to destroy you, to God being like, I'm going to destroy those who afflicted you. Right? I mean, though... <laughs> It's, it's restoration, right? It's God, it's God disciplining his people with the locusts, but then God defending his people against their enemies, right? Discipline and defense here. And it's, it's so intense. The one thing I want to point out here, verse 10, beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I'm a mighty man. Does that make you think of other verses? That's the inverse of what we usually hear. It's take your swords and beat them into plowshares in the book of Isaiah, in the book of Micah. You know, take the implements of war and make them into implements of peace. But now he's calling the people to take what was made for peace and farming and, and, and make it into a weapon. You know, and, and it, it makes you think of Jesus when he sent out the apostles at one point. He says, take a sword. And then later says, you don't need that sword, you know. Um, and so there's a time. There's a time for war. There's a time for peace. And, um, and so here the time is for war. But it's, it's a very powerful book. The applications, I'll just blaze through these. The applications I get out of it is natural disasters are not random occurrences. Natural disasters are not random occurrences. The tsunami in Japan 12 years ago was not simply a natural occurrence. God knew, okay? They are the workings of divine providence and they should promote the fear of God. Natural disasters should promote the fear of God. Um, if you think you are suffering now, if you do not repent and bow your knee to Christ, the coming suffering will be worse. Right? The day of the Lord, that constant, the day of the Lord is coming. You think these locusts are bad? The day of the Lord is coming. Right? This is a mini day of the Lord. What about the big day of the Lord? Three, um, 
Terrible sin, if followed by repentance, is God's grace. Um, is by God's grace followed even still by restoration and blessing, right? Terrible sin can be followed by repentance and by God's grace can lead to wonderful restoration and blessing. God forgives sin. And then, fourth, God zealously loves his people and will see them through. He will see them through. He will be your aid and your comfort and your defense. And you can be sure of that if you are in Christ. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for this book. We thank you for the work of the prophet Joel. We thank you that we have his words, uh, which are from the Spirit. And I pray that we would meditate on these words, that it would sober us up, that it would... um, Make us rejoice in your just judgments, and yet even still to tremble, to tremble as we sin, to tremble before you as we witness natural disasters, and that we would be humble and grateful for your abounding loving kindness. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.